You may be seated, and I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to finish this chapter this morning. We've been asking the question ever since Resurrection Sunday, what does the resurrection change? And the answer is everything. If Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters. We're dead in our sins. Just live it up because in a few years, a few decades, when we die, we will just turn into fertilizer for plants. That's it. That's the end of our existence. If Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters. But since Jesus has been raised from the dead, nothing else matters other than him, his life, and his message that he preached because he proclaimed a message that he backed up and verified by his death and by his resurrection. We've been learning about that, by the way, in Family Bible Hour, and I just encourage you uh, to make it a priority. I know many of you have been uh, coming at 9 o'clock. Our brother Marty has been bringing us an amazing series on apologetics. If you have questions about your faith, if you have questions about Christianity, if you have questions about how to answer questions that others might have, such as one of the most important questions that we covered this morning, how do we know this book is true? How do we know that what we are reading is reliable? And we went over eight things, and I think we'll cover one more next Sunday. Just an amazing time um, being bolstered in our faith. Just a, a beautiful reminder that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that's a historical fact, we have reason to hope. We have an anchor that will never be moved. John has been giving us strategic post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to people. Each one answers that question of what does the res resurrection change. Each one answers it very differently. We've seen that the resurrection changes our relationships with God, with Jesus, with each other, with the world, our mission now to the world. Last week we looked at a very famous figure in the Bible, Doubting Thomas, more like Disbelieving Thomas. And we saw that the resurrection silences skepticism. So what I want to do is I want to read those verses and then see where John places the end at this chapter, the end of his book. Just kind of, uh, he'll give us an epilogue in chapter 21, but this is the end and this is the purpose statement. This is why he has been spending time writing down these words. And it comes off of the heels of what we studied last week. So last week is vital to what we're going to be studying today. Verse 24, we'll pick it up in verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came into the upper room. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut and locked, and he stood in their midst and he said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered, and he said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, 
Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Father, these words are so rich. Just taking an hour to spend on two verses Seems like it would be a lot of time on a little bit of material, but there is so much here that we won't even be able to unpack today. But what is here and what we will see very clearly this morning, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to use it, to take it, to open our eyes, to build wonderful things from your law, and to change us. God, we have been spending years in this gospel for the purpose of coming to this verse for John to say, hey, do you, do you know why I wrote everything I wrote? Let me remind you why I wrote what I wrote. It's so that you would believe. And that's for Christian and non-Christian alike, for the non-Christian to believe, to bow the knee to Christ as Lord, and for the believer to keep on bowing the knee, to abide, to remain, to believe. So God, grant the gift of faith. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. And we would ask you, the giver of that gift, today, this morning, please pour out that gift of faith for believers to continue to cling to the anchor, for non-believers for the very first time to bow the knee to Jesus, their only hope. Guide our time, Holy Spirit. Give us the gift of illumination to see Christ. Show us Christ. As we have sung, as we have prayed, perform that now, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, we saw Thomas in the upper room, the doubter, more like the disbeliever, skeptic, I will not believe. We saw his arrogance. These are my terms for belief. I will lay them down to the creator of the universe. He must bow to my wishes. And, and Jesus so graciously, humbly does. He says, sure, for every single thing that you said is your reason for not believing or reason to believe, I have met that. Reach here with your finger, verse 27. See my hands. Reach your hand. Put it into my side. Don't become, literally stop becoming an unbeliever. Stop becoming an unbeliever, but instead believe. Thomas believes. But Jesus says at the end of that section that we covered last week, verse 29, because you've seen me, have you believed? So do you lay down this for every single person? Unless I see Jesus, I will not believe. And Jesus tells us no. This is a gracious thing for Thomas to see, but that's not going to be the norm. Jesus is telling Thomas and us and the other disciples, blessed are those who did not see, namely the disciples who believed without seeing Jesus yet, and us. We've never seen Jesus, but we believe. And I think the question that John wants us to ask, he thinks we're going to ask it, and we should be asking it, is how are we going to believe on him that we have not seen? That's why John says, therefore, verse 30, therefore, because of Jesus' words, people are going to believe without seeing Jesus. How are they going to believe? 
How can anyone come to believe in the resurrected Christ without seeing him? John says, I'm so glad you asked. These things, verse 31, have been written so that you may believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith can come by believing this book. This book can give you faith through the gift of God to believe in Christ. You don't need to see him. You have seen him in this book. How have we seen him in this book? John tells us, verse 30, Many signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written, but these have been written. These signs have been written so that you may believe. I've written about signs, John is telling us, so that you may believe. He starts by saying in verse 30 that there's other signs, many other signs, that are not in this book. That's one of the most frustrating verses in the Bible for me. I read that and I just think, John, why did you tell us that? Why didn't, why didn't you just say... You'll figure it out when you get to heaven. Um, Jesus is awesome. Let me just leave it at that. But he says, oh man, you, you should have been here. He did all these other signs, so many amazing things. I didn't write any of them, but they, oh, it was amazing. I want to know, John. John specifically is one of the inner circle disciple members. He's not just a disciple. He's the Peter, James, and John disciple. He was with Jesus on the inner circle for three and a half years. John, I want to know what these are. He's been so careful. He's only given us seven signs. And he's left out ones we know he could have put. Jairus' daughter, raised from the dead. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 5 that Jesus says, everyone get out of this house except for Peter, James, and John. Come with me. John was in the house when Jesus did whatever he did, and we don't have record of it in the Gospel of John. We have record from Mark, but Mark is getting his information secondhand from Peter. I want to hear it from John. He was there. Garden of Gethsemane, John was there. John heard Jesus praying, and yet John doesn't mention any of it. I want to know, John. But here's the beauty of what John says that he's not saying. Has anybody ever said to you, or maybe you've wondered this yourself, I think eternity is going to be really boring. Eternity sounds like a long time, and I think it's going to be really boring. If you've ever thought that, just circle verse 30. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. They're not written here. But when you get to heaven, it will take an eternity just to answer what those signs are, how Jesus did them. I don't know if we're going to get you know, a video playback, a DVD, a Blu-ray of what's happened, but we're going to hear the stories. We're going to hear the stories that are in front of us in the Bible, and we're going to say, I know what happened there, and we're going to hear, oh, you, you thought you knew. Here, I'll show you what really happened. Eternity is not going to be boring because we're going to be diving into this book and everything that's not included in this book for millennia and millennia. Just think about our brother R.C. Sproul who's in heaven right now who knew the Bible better than most anybody on the face of the earth who's just probably in heaven right now going, wow, how much I did not know. Eternity is not going to be boring. We're just going to be able to worship Jesus for all of eternity and figure out maybe even John himself will unpack for us these other signs in verse 30. But here, John is giving us, in verses 30 and 31, his 
purpose statement. No clearer in any of the other gospels is a purpose statement like this one. He says, I have written for two specific reasons, to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and number two, that you would believe those things. One is evidential, one is evangelistic. One appeals to reason, one appeals to faith. It's as if we have come to the end of this book and John stopped to speak to us directly. It's as if he says this, hey, hey reader, you've made it this far. Congratulations. I hope you've enjoyed your time in my book, but I want to ask you, do you realize why I wrote what I wrote? Have you caught the purpose? Have you caught the point? I think you probably have, but if not, I want to spell it out for you and I want to connect all the dots for you. And then he's going to end. There's going to be an epilogue. Chapter 21 is just kind of an epilogue, you know, the, the falling action and the conclusion. But this is really the end of everything that John has been trying with purpose to teach us. So we're just going to take it at face value, two verses. John's going to tell us about signs, number one, about Jesus as the Christ, number two, about Jesus as the Son of God, number three, and all for the purpose of believing in him. So signs. He says, therefore, many other signs. My Bible says signs. That's a very good translation. Some Bibles might say miracles. Some Bibles might say miraculous works. They are miracles. They're signs that Jesus performed that John is picking, seven of them, specifically for a purpose. These signs are miracles. There's about 40 miracles recorded in all of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. About 40 miracles recorded in all of the Gospels. John chapter 21, verse 25 says this. There's many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. He does not say, if you were to write in every book in the world, it couldn't hold it all. He says, if the world could be an entire library, it wouldn't hold it all. So there are many signs, many miracles, many wondrous works that Jesus did. But John only picks seven. He picks seven. The first one's in chapter two, wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. Chapter four, nobleman's son who is near death, healed. Chapter five, the paralytic, 38 years at the pools of Bethesda is healed. Chapter six, the feeding of the 5,000, walking in the water, still in the storm, all at the same time. Chapter 9, the man who is born blind, given sight. Chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead. And chapter 20, the resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection. John calls them signs, which is showing us the purpose of why Jesus did these things and why John's including them. They are signs. They are pointers. You could really just put that word in there. Therefore, many other pointers Jesus did. They're pointing, they're telling you something. The signs are not an end. The signs are a means to the end of getting your eyes on something else. They're validating the claims that Jesus made about himself. He claimed to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. He claimed to be the Messiah. Those are very incredible claims, and he backs them up credibly with miracles. Jesus himself says that. These signs are for the purpose of pointing your eyes to the reality of who I am. Chapter 5, verse 36 the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So the works testify, the signs testify that the Father sent me, that I am God, come from God as Messiah. They testify. John chapter 6, verse 26, 
After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus answers and says to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You just want another meal for free, not that you saw the meal for free and realize only God can perform that miracle. So John tells us these are signs, and they point to something. They've been pointing this entire gospel And we have seen three very clear responses to every single sign. It's just, we're walking down a road, and we see a sign that says, up ahead is a Chick-fil-A. Now, three responses. You can either go, awesome, we got to stop. I know there's a Chick-fil-A up there, and we have to stop for their amazing food and drinks. Just unreal. We have to stop. Or maybe, I mean, sometimes signs are wrong. I pulled off the freeway once before trying to find a place, and it didn't really, maybe, not sure. We could try, but I'm not sure. Or just, no, that sign's wrong. Those are the three responses, right? Those are the three responses we've seen in the Gospel of John. Either genuine belief because of the signs. Of course, Jesus is the Son of God. There's no other way that we can uh, take this. Or superficial belief. Well, yeah, I mean, but maybe uh, I, I like the idea, but I don't know if that's really what I want to go for. Or you want Jesus to be somebody that he's not even saying that he is. Or just out and out unbelief. Regardless of the signs, I will not believe. So John says, I have told you these seven specific signs to prove to you something, to to show you, to evidence to you something about Jesus. Two things. He's the Christ and he's the Son of God. So signs are for pointing. Number two, they're pointing us to Christ and the Son of God. Christ. What does this mean? We, We sang the song, show us Christ. He says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You must believe Jesus is the Christ if you are to have life in his name. You cannot take Jesus as something other than Christ. We have to know what Christ means then. You ask most people and they would tell you that it's Jesus's last name. Uh, Jesus Christ. Christ is his last name, but it's not. It's his title. Christ is a title It's very literally the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ equals Messiah. Messiah is the Old Testament Hebrew. Christ, New Testament Greek. Messiah is a verb in the Old Testament. It's a a noun, but it comes from a verb that means to spread a liquid over. So Messiah is a title. It's a noun that comes from a verb to spread a liquid over. In our vernacular, we would just call that to anoint. So the Messiah is an anointed one. The Messiah is anointed, usually with oil. And who is anointed with oil in the Old Testament? There's a lot of people that are anointed in the Old Testament with oil. There's actually things that are anointed. Altars, rocks. I just read the story for family devotion in uh, my family in Genesis where uh, Jacob anoints the rock. He sleeps on the rock, ends up having a great vision, says, this is a precious rock. Anoint the rock with oil. But, specifically, 28 of the 39 times that the word Messiah is used, or the word anoint is used, it's used in respect to a king. 
The anointed one was the king, a ruler set up, a chosen person by God established for the purpose of a specific duty. So the Messiah is king. When John says, you must see these signs and let them point to you to the truth and reality that Jesus is the Messiah. One aspect of Jesus being Messiah is that he is king. He is king. He is ruler. He is Lord. But he's not the kind of king that the Jews thought he would be. It's actually one of the reasons why they killed him. The Messiah in a Jewish mindset was a political ruler to come in and to get rid of the Romans and to bring peace. Uh, ben and I had an amazing time talking with a, a friend who's a Jewish man that we met at uh, Coffee Bean. And I said, okay, why, he asked me first, why do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? And I said, well, all these prophecies that he fulfilled, we went through some of them in the Old Testament. And I said, that's one of the biggest reasons I believe the Bible says he is, but look at all the prophecies that this one man fulfilled. And I said, why don't you believe? How could one guy fulfill all these prophecies? And I don't know if you remember his answer, Ben. He said, well, he didn't fulfill the biggest, most important prophecy. I said, what's that? He said, do you see peace in the world? Definitely not. He said, then the Messiah hasn't come. The Messiah brings peace. I said, well, absolutely, he brings peace with God. He brings peace in the war of sin in our flesh. And Yeah, that's great, but he, he needs to bring political peace. That's what the Jews in Jesus' day wanted. And John says, no, he is Messiah. He's king, not the kind of king that you think he is. He's king the way he was prophesied to be king. Anointed people in the Old Testament primarily, 28 out of 39 times, were kings. Others were prophets. Prophets were anointed. They were sent by God on specific errands to speak God's truth. And so they were anointed. This is somebody who would be covered with oil for the purpose of saying he is set apart for a specific task, a specific duty. So set apart to be a king, a ruler on God's behalf in Israel, set apart to be a prophet, to speak God's truth to the world. What has John been telling us this entire book? What did Jesus' own lips speak? I am the way, the truth. I am God's truth. He speaks truth. He is truth. And John says... At the end of his gospel, don't you remember all the signs that pointed to that? Remember how he started his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, the truth of God, the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God's truth dwelling with man. We've, be, we've seen, we've beheld his glory full of grace and truth. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one's seen God at any time, but Jesus has perfectly explained him to us. Jesus is truth, perfect truth. So kings were anointed, prophets were anointed. And the third group in the Old Testament that was anointed was priests. Priests would mediate between God and us. They would speak on behalf of God to us, to the people, and they would speak on behalf of the people to God. Our word for that in the Bible that we've been studying in the book of Hebrews is an intercessor. An intercessor. Priests would intercede on behalf of their people. And that's why we spent months in the high priestly prayer. Jesus intercedes for his own. Even now, as we've been studying Hebrews, he's interceding for us. And his intercessory work is what will bring us safely home. 
So John says, I have written and given you these specific signs to point you to the reality that Jesus is the Christ, that he is king, he is a prophet, and he is a priest. So my question is, how do the signs do that? Let's look at them. John chapter 2, verse 11, the wedding at Cana. Jesus turns the water into wine. If you are going to claim to be king over the whole world, then you better have dominion over natural things. And he is king over the natural realm. He commands people. They do what he tells them to do. And he commands the very makeup and properties of water. He's king. He's prophet. Remember that first sign. What is his response to his mother? It's not my time yet. I have a time frame, and God, my Father, is going to tell me when that time frame is, because I have work to do, anointed by God as a prophet in this world, but it's not my time yet. And when she says, that's okay, whatever this man tells you to do, do it, listen to him. Somewhere in that moment, God the Father says, it's time. It's time. He's doing the Father's will perfectly. It's his food, he will say, to do the Father's will. And he's a priest. He's the mediator between God and man. God, the Father, is it time? Yes? Okay, now I can work on behalf of the Father to the people. The second sign, the nobleman's son who's near death. Same thing. King over the natural and the supernatural. We're going to see amazing things happen with the raising of Lazarus, with the man born blind. You could go down this list and see Jesus is king. He owns, he has dominion over the natural and supernatural realm. He tells demons to be gone, and they're gone. He tells a man who is born blind to see, and he receives his sight. All of these signs point us to what Nicodemus says. There's nobody who could do this unless he was sent by God. You're something special. That's all John's been trying to do with seven very pointed signs to say that Jesus is clearly God's anointed one. He is a king to rule. He is a prophet to speak God's truth. He is a priest to mediate and to intercede. As one pastor says, a prophet, a priest, and a king are essential needs for us. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sin precludes us from approaching God. And our sin has left us in ignorance. Before the fall, man enjoyed perfect communion with God, knowledge of God, fellowship with God. But the fall, with the fall came a disastrous cataclysmic change. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Sin has hidden God's face from us. We don't know God, therefore we need a prophet to tell us about him. We don't have a relationship with God, so we need someone to take us to God to reconcile us. And we are ruled by Satan and the kingdom of darkness, so we need a new king to conquer the devil and free us from all of our enemies. That's why John says, in order to have life in the name of Jesus, you must believe that he is the Christ. You need to believe that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Why? Because you and I need a prophet, priest, and king. We need a prophet, priest, and king. Do you realize your need for a prophet? Do you realize your need to know God? You can't know him on your own. You need him to reveal himself to you. And he's done that generally through creation. Creation cries out that there is a creator, there is a God. But you can't get saved by staring at a tree. If you want to know God personally and intimately, you cannot do anything to do that, to figure that out, to find him. You need him to come find you. And that's what he has done through Jesus. 
He has made the way for you to have a right relationship with God. Do you realize that you need a priest? You need somebody to mediate between you and God. You and I are guilty. We are sinners. And our sin has separated. Even as we said in Family Bible Hour this morning, the veil that stood between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, that veil is a picture of separation. Thick, huge, clear, perfect display. This is separation. We can't get to God on our own because we have all sinned and fallen short of perfection. So we need a priest who can do the work for us. And as we've been studying in Hebrews, so perfectly said, there were priests in the Old Testament that would do the work over and over and over, and they had to atone even for their, their, their own sin. But Jesus has come as our perfect priest. And he sat down, that's what we studied on Wednesday. All these priests just hurrying around, scurrying around. I, I just never, my job never ends. Jesus says, my job's done. I did the work to be the mediator between God and man, and I can sit down. Now he's working on our behalf. Now to intercede for us, but he's doing it while he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We need a prophet. We need a priest. We need a king. Oh, that we would gladly kill our own will and let God's will reign in us. Gladly. This is, this is America, right? We're in America. You have your autonomy. You, you get to just do, you pick it, you have a dream, you make it happen, you're king. Oh, to gladly say, I have no will. This is my will. I have no dreams. This is my dream. I, I have no authority. This is my authority. You ask me a question, and I'm going to take you here. Oh, that we would gladly submit ourselves to Christ's rule in our lives. It changes everything. That's why we're studying war of words in our marriage study. It changes our relationships. It changes our words because Jesus is Lord over every word we speak. It changes everything. We need a prophet, a priest, and a king. And unless you willingly, gladly, joyfully submit to those realities, then you can't be saved because you claim, I don't need a Messiah. I don't need a prophet. I don't need a priest. I can get to God on my own. I can find him out. I don't need somebody to reconcile me. I can atone for my sins through good works. And I can choose my own path. I can choose my own destiny. I can be king of my life. Somebody who says those three things can't be saved. They must bow the knee to Christ as prophet, priest, and king. That's why John says, I've given you these signs to point you to believe he is the Christ. That's why, by the way, there's such a longing for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Such a longing. In the Old Testament, the Messiah is promised. In the New Testament, that fulfillment happens. That's why in the New Testament, the number one title for Jesus is Christ. It's used over 500 times in the New Testament of Jesus. Many other titles that Jesus bears, but this is the dominating title in the New Testament. Why? Because in the Old Testament, he's anticipated constantly, and in the New Testament, he has arrived, and we cherish him for who he is. He was anticipated and prophesied in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, the Messiah was going to be bruised by Satan. He was going to be the bruised seed of the woman who crushes Satan's head. And that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross. Satan bruised him. He crushed Satan's head. The Messiah 
will come through the line of Adam, through the line of Seth, through the line of Abraham, through the line of Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and David. He's going to be royalty coming through that line. That's why we have genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, both flowing back to David, both telling us Jesus is from those lines. According to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he's going to be born of a virgin. It's only ever happened once in human history. That's Jesus. Born in Bethlehem, Micah tells us. That's Jesus. Daniel tells us the exact timetable at 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem and bring the Jews back from captivity, and that's exactly what happens. Old Testament also says that he's going to have a, a herald, a forerunner that's going to come before him to prepare the way, and that's John the Baptist. He's going to be despised and rejected, Isaiah 53, Psalm 69. He's going to enter Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, a baby donkey, Zechariah chapter 9. He's going to speak God's word, do only God's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit, betrayed by a close friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, and the blood money will be thrown on a temple floor and used to buy a field. All of that was prophesied in the Old Testament of the Messiah, and all of that happened in Jesus. Jesus perfectly fits all of the prophecies of the Old Testament Messiah. He fulfills all of those prophecies. And that's why Paul is going to tell us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's Messiah. He's the only one who is prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. And he is the only hope that we have for eternal life. So John says, I have written these things so that you may believe he's the Christ. You may believe he is prophet, priest, and king. You may believe he is God's anointed one, Messiah, sent by God, to fulfill those tasks. He's a mediator. He mediates as king, the rule of God on earth. He mediates as priest, uh, man to God in reconciliation, and he mediates as prophet, the revelation of God to man. So John's writing to say all these signs point to Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of this promised Messiah. But that's not it. We've got signs, number one. They point to Jesus as Messiah, number two. But they also point to Jesus as the Son of God, number three. Son of God. This is another title that many people have a hard time. They just hear son of and they think physical descendant. And yes, the majority of times in the Bible, son of means physical descendant of. But there are other places in the Bible where son of does not mean physical descendant. If we just, as Christians, just pulled out of thin air. Well, no, Son of God means equal to God. There we go. It's just, it, he's fully God. People say, well, the whole Bible is replete with Son of, meaning physical descendant. And you're telling me, but oh, when Jesus is referred to as Son of God, that just means that he's equal to God, that he is God. How do you get there? If he was the only person called Son of, and it's not meaning physical descendant, then I would be a little bit suspicious. But he's not the only person. There's many other places in the Bible where son of just equals equal to. Son of God means equal to God. Remember uh, Jesus talking to Judas, the, the son of perdition. Son of perdition. Doesn't mean, perdition means hell. Doesn't mean that hell had a baby and it's Judas means that Judas is equal to everything hell stands for. It's one of the reasons why I firmly believe Judas is not saved, and he's in hell right now. He's everything that hell represents. 
God's anger, a hatred for God, a lack of submission to him. Everything hell represents, that's Judas. This is said of David. This is said of so many people in the Old Testament, a couple of people in the New Testament. Son of equals equal to. It means equal to. So when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, it's a reference to him being equal to God. Even today in Israel, go through a bar mitzvah process, right? Go through a bar mitzvah. Something changes in the way that a parent speaks about their kids. I had a conversation with a rabbi when I was able to live in Israel for four months, over this issue of son of. And he said, we're talking from the Old Testament, he said, we still do this today. If you were to ask me, how many kids do you have? I would say I have four children. And if you were to talk to me about my one male child, I would say this is my child. Because he has not gone through the bar mitzvah process. He's not old enough yet. He's my child. He's not my son. But when he's bar mitzvahed, he becomes equal. He's under the law on his own, and he becomes my equal under the law on his own. And now I say, this is my son. Now we're equal. This is from a, an amazing Jewish rabbi who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Son of can mean physical descendant, and it normally does in the Bible. Let's own that. This is difficult for Muslims to understand. Very, very difficult for them to understand. So we need to own the challenge first and foremost. Yeah, totally get it. It sounds like something that it doesn't fully mean. But what does it mean? Clearly in the Bible, Jesus is claiming to be equal to God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. God with God. In the beginning, he made all things. Only God makes all things. Jesus in John chapter 17 says, Restore to me, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was created. I had glory with you. I was pre-existent, eternally existent. Restore to me that glory. And there was no question, by the way, there was no question in Israel during the time of Jesus what his claim was. That's why John chapter 5 verse 18 People pick up stones to stone him because he's making himself equal with God. Nobody had a question what his claim was. They knew he claimed to be God. You talk to people today who say, I'm not a Christian, I kind of like all religions, but I really love that Jesus guy, man. He's awesome, I love what he teaches, I love, you know, great teacher, good moral guy, preaches peace and prosperity and kindness and love and unity, love that. My question is, awesome. So you think Jesus is a good teacher, right? Yeah, I love Jesus. He's a great teacher. Okay, cool. Can I ask you, do you think that Jesus is God? Oh, definitely not. Like, he was a great guy, but definitely not God. But if he taught that he was God, you, you're telling me he's a good teacher, and one of his principles in teaching was, by the way, I'm God, then he can't be a good teacher if he's not God. Or if he is a good teacher, which you say he is, then he is God. Which is it? You can't have both. That's C.S. Lewis, right? Liar, lunatic, Lord. Either Jesus is lying about being God and he totally knows it, pulling a fast one over everybody. Or he's crazy. He thinks that he is really God, but he's not. But he's just crazy. He doesn't know that he's lying. Or he truly is who he claims to be. 
He claimed it over and over and over again. Some people say, well, no, he never claimed to be God. Well, no, he did. John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. We are the same. Uh, perfect representation of the Father. Um, Mark chapter 2, the paralytic that's dropped down through the roof, Jesus says, uh, your sins are forgiven. Everybody goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody can forgive sins except for God alone, which they got it. They totally understand what he's trying to say. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're right. I shouldn't have said it that way. Um, I can't forgive sins, but God can forgive sins. So let's pray and ask God to forgive sins. He goes, no, no, no you got it. And just to prove to you that I do have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. So now you know both. He is God. He claimed to be God over and over again. That's why he's killed. It's one of the reasons why he's killed, because he blasphemed in the Jewish minds. And John's been giving us testimony. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you believe that he's the Christ and that he's God. He's the Son of God. He's equal to God. And he's given us that from chapter 1. John the Baptist, this guy's God. Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, this guy's God. There's no way that this man is just a normal human being. All the disciples in chapter 2. Nicodemus in chapter 3. Woman at the well in chapter 4. And then all the citizens of Sychar and also the noblemen whose sons dine. Jesus himself in chapter 5 lists out the testimonies. John the Baptist said this. My miracles say this. God the Father says this. And the scripture says this. Uh, John chapter 6, 5,000 people fed. Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are God. John chapter 7, verse uh, 7 and 8, many place their faith in Jesus as God. Chapter 9, a man born blind. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, when the Pharisee says to the man born blind, who healed you? He can't be a prophet, right? He can't be God, right? And he says, man, I don't know the guy who healed me. But if somebody comes along and can heal a man who is born blind, I think he's pretty special. And for you guys to say that he's not, something's wrong with you, not with that guy. I love John chapter 9. John chapter 10, Jesus' testimony of the Father's will being done through him as the Son. John chapter 11, many come to believe in him as Son. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Triumphal entry, chapter 12, 13 through 20. The Passion Week narrative, Mary, Peter, John, Thomas, other disciples. It's just so abundantly clear in this gospel, Jesus is not just a human, and he's not just a human who is God's anointed Messiah. He is a human, he is Messiah, and he is God. He is God. You cannot believe in a saving way if you don't believe Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and as the Son of God. In this gospel account, we've come again and again to seeing the Savior's greatness. Every Sunday has been something new about how awesome Jesus is. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis and Prince Caspian in the Chronicles of Narnia. He describes an encounter, it's the second book, he describes an encounter between Lucy and Aslan, who's a representative of Christ. And Lucy had seen and known Aslan in the previous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But in Prince Caspian, she looks at Aslan, she gazes into his face, and she says, as he, spe he speaks to her and says, Welcome, child. And she replies, Aslan, you're bigger than I remember. Aslan says, that's because you're a little older, little one. And she says, not because you are? And his answer is, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me to be bigger. That's what we do every time we gather. We're growing in the Word of God so that Christ just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. 
We just can't have too glorious of an estimation of who Jesus is. We can't have too big of a picture of who Jesus is. We can't have an over-glorified view of Jesus. So John says, I'm writing all of these things, these seven signs in this book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. So, signs, number one, we've defined those. Christ, number two, we defined that. Son of God, number three. What's the purpose? It's clear, to believe. The conclusion of this whole book is belief. I've written so that you may believe. John means to prove to you through the signs that Jesus performed that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. But it's not enough for you just to say, oh, yeah, I get that. It's clear. He wants you to receive him. As we sang, the the living water to satisfy, the bread to satisfy the hungry. He wants you to believe in a saving way. The Gospel of John has been radiating faith, and John offers us the motto over and over again, believing is seeing. So believe. Some people would say, well, I need more information. John says, no, in the Bible you have the information you need. You don't need more information. It's here. Some say, well, I'd like to confirm these things by a personal, emotional experience. Sure, the Bible says that, but I need to kind of confirm it with my life. God doesn't save by experiences. He saves through faith in Jesus. Believe in him. But there's a very interesting note in verse 31. It's what really old, wise theologians called a textual variant. means... We have so many documents of the New Testament in Greek, and they all say the same thing, but then there's some that kind of seem to, one says one thing, one says the other. We don't really know how to split this up. And it's found in verse 31. These things have been written, and here's the textual variant, so that you may believe. So my Bible says, so that you may believe. So, One camp says it's the, so that you may come to believe, start believing. And one camp says, no, it's so that you may continue to believe. You already believe, but we want you to continue to believe. One seems kind of for non-believers, one seems for believers. This is where I just kind of end the, the debate. I go, well, that's, the Bible says that everywhere. To the non-believer, You need to see Christ in the scriptures to bow the knee to him as prophet, priest, and king, as son of God, and embrace him and believe him. You need to do that, non-believer, so do that today. But for the believer, you need to keep on believing. You need to keep on believing. And I actually think, going back to Thomas's interaction with Jesus, I, I think that it is more, the second, more to the believer, don't stop in your belief. Cling to Christ. Jesus has said this, right? If you don't abide, John chapter 15, if you don't abide in Christ and bear fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown in the fire. You're going to prove that you were never truly saved, that you never truly believed. There is such a thing as an unbelieving believer. This was John chapter 2, right? Many believed in him, but Jesus himself was not believing their, their belief. Yeah, you, you think I'm cool, you think I'm awesome, but I know that you don't believe that I am God. That's why he gives us the warning in John chapter 8, verse 31. If you continue in my words, then 
you are truly a disciple of mine. If you continue my words, then you're truly a disciple. If you stop believing, you're never truly saved. And this book has been teaching us how to abide, but more importantly than that, why we should abide. So, we come to the end of this chapter, really John's conclusion, then he'll give us a little epilogue. These things have been written so that you may believe. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You must believe. Brothers and sisters, keep on believing. If anyone is here who does not believe in Jesus as the only hope of their salvation, as the only right standing before God on their own. We we don't have righteousness on our own to commend us to God. If we are going to be perfect to get to God, if we are going to go the works route and be perfect, if getting to heaven is based on our goodness, I can just, I guarantee all of you, all of us together are going to hell. If getting to God on our own works is the message of the gospel. Praise God it's not the message of the gospel. The trap of sin. It's always been this way from the very beginning of the garden up until now, and it will always be. The the trap of sin is that I can be holy doing my own thing. I can be holy doing my own thing. God tells us, be holy as I'm holy. And the trap of sin, okay, be like God. Remember what Satan says in the garden? He said, Eve, if you want to be like God, eat this fruit. If you want to be like God, don't do what he tells you to do. Do your own thing. The trap of sin is saying, okay, I'm going to be good enough on my own. I'm going to do my own thing to be like God. I'm going to be perfect on my own apart from God. That's what every religion preaches, by the way. Every religion says your greatest problem is outside of you, and the solution to that problem is inside of you. Just look inside, and you'll solve the problem. Christianity says your greatest problem is inside you, and you have no hope of fixing that problem on your own. You need a solution outside of you. That's why we plead the blood of Christ. He is the solution to our problem of sin. He came, he lived a perfect sinless life, he died the death that you and I deserve so that we could be welcomed by the Father. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. God the Father gave us his Son so that we could be in a reconciled relationship with him. That's why Jesus said, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me, perfectly obeying. He did it perfectly, because we can't. And brothers and sisters, that's what we celebrate when we come to communion. We celebrate that he did the work perfectly. The whole Gospel of John has been helping us see Jesus is doing these things perfectly. He is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and you can have eternal life by believing in him. That's why we believe, that's why we receive, that's why we feast on him. There's moments in preaching that I'll never forget. I don't know if you guys have these moments. Usually, typically, they're at conferences. Uh, the, together for the gospel conference that we just went to, there was, a, there was a moment that I'll never forget. 
A moment I'll never forget, Legan Duncan was preaching. He was just doing a beautiful job talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the law in the Old Testament pointed to. And he took us almost as an aside to the Lord's table. At first it made no sense where he was going. He said this, these elements, we come to celebrate these elements. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he took the bread and broke it and gave it out. Do you remember what he said? Do you remember his words? He said, take and eat. Remember the last time we heard those words? Last time we heard those words, things didn't go too well. Satan said, oh, take and eat. And what did Eve do? She took and she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her. And Jesus says in the upper room, almost looking right at Satan, watch this, Satan, take and eat. So, so simple, so easy a thing it looked like for Eve to just take a bite. And what happened? All of humanity plunged into sin. So hard a thing in undoing her taking and eating. So hard. And yet it was done by our Savior so that through the work that he did, take and eat now become verbs of salvation and no longer condemnation. So when we come to these elements, we remember we have been saved from future wrath and saved for righteousness. So believe. I think if John were here right now, he would say this. Please believe. Believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Believe that he is the Son of God. Believe he is God come in the flesh. Believe he is your Savior. He is your treasure. He is your greatest satisfaction. And keep on believing. Don't stop believing. Press into belief. Cry out every day, I believe. Help my unbelief. Believe and have everlasting life in his name. Father, we thank you for this gospel that has just, every Sunday, given us a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger picture of Christ. And so we come to this table and we say we believe and we eat to be satisfied and we drink to be satisfied, not in a physical sense, but in the reality that the gospel has made an end to all of our sin. The gospel, once for all, sinners saved by the work of another so that we don't have to rely on our righteousness, which is just filthy rags before you. We can come with all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame, and bring it boldly before you and say, can you do something with this? And you tell us, I already have. And we hear your words, take and eat, and we remember every day we take and eat of sin and this morning, we want to take and eat of the gospel. So God, as we prepare to partake of these elements, may we believe, press into belief, cling to belief, and cling to our anchor. Jesus, you are our prophet, priest, our king, 
And though you are infinite, you are intimate. And you, you call us friends. So we cry out to you now, our Savior, our prophet, our priest, our king, and our friend, the friend of sinners. We pray in your name. Amen.